The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, why don't you take your Bibles uh, with me again and uh, turn to the book of Romans. Uh, we're still in chapter 1, and uh, I make no apologies for that. We're still in chapter 1. Uh, the book of Romans is considered to be Paul's magnum opus, his great work, his magisterial work. And even in the introduction to the book of Romans, uh, there's this theological masterpiece even in the introduction uh, one resource that I've read noted this about uh, even the, the beginning of Paul's book to the Romans. He says, Paul opens every one of his letters with a salutation or this introductory greeting. And that Romans is by far the longest of all the greetings of the New Testament. One commentator added that this is the longest of any of the greetings found in all of Greek antiquity. Uh, meaning that out of all the Greek manuscripts, documents, letters that we found that the Apostle Paul writes a longer introduction than anything that we have in existence. This is, this is the longest greeting by far and that, that Paul gives. And if you compare his introduction in uh, Romans chapter 1 as we get from 1 all the way down to verse 7, I mean, you compare it with the greetings in some of the other epistles, it's only one verse. You know, like 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And then he's right into the, to the letter. But this book, in the introduction, it just goes on and on for verse after verse of introduction. But that makes sense uh, when you consider that Paul is introducing the gospel. And he's introducing the, the greatest message that the world has ever known. And he's also introducing his ministry of that greatest of all messages that the world would ever know. And uh, to keep in mind that the churches in Rome, they, they haven't actually met Paul personally, uh, this is their first correspondence with Paul. This is their first letter that they're getting from Paul. And Paul is also, in this letter, asking for financial support. Later on in the book of Romans, Paul will go on to say that uh, in verse 15, uh, chapter 15 and verse 24, whenever I go to Spain, uh, for I hope to see you in passing, to be helped on my way there by you. You know, I'm going to Spain and I'm, I'm expecting to be helped by you. You know, oh, really? <laughs> in chapter 15, verse 28, therefore, when I have finished... I will go on by way of you to Spain. Oh, you will? You know, so here Paul is writing to this church that he's never met before in his life. And he's saying, yeah, when I come to you, I'm going to get helped by you on my way to Spain. I'm going to spend some time there with you. And then uh, you're going to help me to get on my way to Spain. If, if this was my first time hearing from a missionary who I didn't know personally, and he was asking our church for support, I might want to know a little bit more about who are we supporting? Who, who is this person? Can you tell, tell me a little bit more about who you are? Like, why are we supporting you? What are your qualifications? What is the message that you're hoping to, to give? What do you believe? You know, there's more questions that you want to know about a person before you uh, support them. As a, as a church at a, a Baltimore Bible Church, we receive uh, messages all the time, email, uh, phone calls, people asking for financial support. You know, usually I'll get a letter and it's something like, you know, dear child of God, Calvary greetings to you. Will you please partner together with us in gospel ministry and sow a seed 
please send your donations to the following address. And I have no idea who they are, what they believe, or how they got my email address. I have no idea. I mean, I remember when I first got a cell phone, and I thought that I didn't have to worry about telemarketers calling me anymore. Anybody ever think that? <laughs> how, how wrong we were. They, they find your number, they pay for your number, and they're still calling you. And then it's like, you pick up the phone, it's like, and who is this? Like, why do you have my number? And they're, they're asking for, for money. We receive calls, emails all the time, and they often end with, please send money. But I don't know you. And Paul writes this lengthy introduction because he wants the church at Rome to know him. I want you to know who I am. I want you to, to have a, an understanding of what I believe, of what I preach, of what my ministry is all about. So if the question was asked, why are we supporting Paul? In verse 1, Paul is a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. If the question was, what does Paul believe about the gospel of God? Verse 2, Paul believes the gospel of God is that which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. So it's consistent with the Scriptures and with the Son. What does Paul believe about the Son of God? In verses 3 and 4, his son, you know, Jesus Christ, uh, clearly deity here, was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And what is Paul's mission? Look at verse 5. Through whom, Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. That's, that's Paul's resume in a nutshell. And it's what we've spent the last few weeks covering together. And this week, Paul rounds out this introduction by giving a formal greeting to the believers of Rome. And he best, basically lets them know why you're on my email list. Because if Paul has received grace and apostleship uh, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, the Roman churches are included in that work among all the Gentiles. And Paul asking the Roman church to help him on his mission to Spain is also part of his work because Spain is also a part of all the Gentiles. So you see the connection here. And now Paul is going to, to move into greeting the saints in Rome personally, but even this greeting is expanded. It's an expanded greeting, and so much of what Paul has to say in these opening verses is like a, a foreshadowing or a, a preview, you know, the teaser trailer for what's to come in the rest of the book of, of Romans. And the gospel themes that are contained here are going to be so incredibly instructive for us. And the way that Paul addresses these future partners in ministry is going to be remarkably helpful for us. Because what it shows us is that these believers in Rome were not simply a means to Paul's ends. They were not a stepping stone for Paul to get to his greater mission out there somewhere. The believers in Rome were part of his mission. They were the mission of God. And just practically, this is going to help us understand how we should think about ourselves, how we should think about one another, and more importantly, what is it that God thinks about us? Because God does not look past you to get to the real prize somewhere else beyond you. We are vitally connected to the mission of God. And there's three designations that we share today with these believers of Rome and uh, of all generations, all generations of Christians, and there's, there's three, only three points here. We're called, we're loved, and we're saints. We're called, we're loved, and we're saints. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 1, and I'll start at verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ, Jesus, called as an apostle, 
set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called the saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you again, and Father, we are so grateful for the work that you're doing through your word all over the globe, even being connected to the missions work beyond our local geography. Father, we're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for the gospel that saves uh, for the gospel that has encouraged us, for the gospel that, uh, that we now proclaim. And uh, Father, we uh, do pray that as we uh, examine uh, the book of Romans, which has as a major theme, the gospel of God, uh, Father, that you would open our eyes to, to see wonderful things in your word. And uh, Father, that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In Psalm 2 and verse 8, when... The father says to the son, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. What do you think he meant by that? I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. He's not talking about the real estate. He's not talking about the physical property of the nations, even though that belongs to the son as well. Your, your physical address, your address belongs to the son. You know, the, the world belongs to him. But that's not what he was talking about when he said, I will give you the nations as your inheritance. What he's talking about is the people of those nations, the redeemed souls that would be given to the Son as a gift of his inheritance. People are the inheritance of the Son of God, which really makes sense of the many times that Jesus speaks about those that the Father has given to him. How many times have you run across that in Scripture before? The Gospel of John, chapter 6 and verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. John 10, 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Or John 17 and verse 9. I ask on behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So the father has given a group of people to the son. And Paul considers it his mission as one who is a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, to bring in that inheritance to the Son. He says in verse 5, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. So Paul, in a very real sense, was like the, the missionaries that we've read about, you know, like David Brainerd, a missionary uh, to the American Indians in uh, the 18th century, who said, I exceedingly longed that God would get to himself a name among the heathen. I cared not whether I lived or what hardship I went through so that I could but gain souls to Christ. And that's the Apostle Paul. I, I don't care what I go through as long as I can gain souls for Christ. As long as I see him receive the inheritance that belongs to him, those that the Father has given to him, I want him to receive every one of those. And Paul now has his sight set on Spain as the next frontier and he writes the book of Romans from Corinth, and he says this in chapter 15 and verse 28. He says, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, talking about Corinth, 
I will go on by way of you to Spain. But Paul doesn't want the Romans to get the idea that they're just some kind of stepping stone on his way to greener pastures. It's not like Paul is climbing the corporate ladder and he's just using them to get to his next job promotion. He says in verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You're part of that mission. You're part of that Gentile mission. And the you in verse 6 is emphatic. Paul uses the, the Greek, uh, a Greek pronoun to say, you, even you, are among the called. You're, you're a part of that. And they're among all the Gentiles that Paul has been sent to, uh, which is actually one of the indications that uh, the primary audience in Rome was a Gentile audience. And specifically, Paul here says, you are the called of Jesus Christ, which is the first designation that we share in common with all true believers. We are the called. You are the called of Jesus Christ. And there's more than one way you can understand that word called. You, know, you are the called of Jesus Christ. It could mean that you've been called by Jesus Christ, meaning that he's the one who has called you. Or it could mean that you have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. You've been called by God to belong to Jesus Christ. And both are true because we've been called by, to Jesus Christ by the Father. And also throughout Scripture, we find that the Father is described as the one who calls believers into fellowship with the Son. For example, uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and 9, it says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 12, where it says, It is God who has called you into his own kingdom and glory. Or Romans 8 and verse 30, where it speaks of the Father and says, Those whom he has predestined, he also called. He's called you into salvation. But then there's other passages that speak about Christ calling us to salvation as well. For example, in John 10 and verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They follow me. And that's more than just a, a general call to salvation. That's speaking about a, a call that produces an effect or what some theologians call the effectual call. And it's important that we make the distinction between what the Bible presents as a general, external, audible call, call to salvation, and the call that actually produces a result, the call that's effectual, that they hear my voice and they follow me. There's a difference between those two calls. Uh, the, the first is uh, a general, external call, and uh, hopefully that's what you hear every time you come to Baltimore, uh, Baltimore Bible Church, that you're hearing the call to salvation, come and follow Christ. That's a call that we sh should be giving and giving to as many people as will hear the message. You know, we want to spread that message far and wide. Come, and, come to Christ and that, that you might have eternal life. That's the external call, and we give that out to as many people as will listen. Matthew 22 uh, speaks about that in the parable of the wedding feast in uh, chapter 22 and verse 9. Uh, where he says, go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding feast. Or like the, the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, where the sower went out to sow. And he's just broadcasting the seed. It falls on the hard ground, the, the rocky ground, the thorny ground, the good soil. He's just broadcasting the seed as far and as wide as he can. And that's what we do. We, we throw the seed of the word of God, throw out the gospel. And that's why we call our outreach ministry during the, the summer scatter. You know, because we're just out there scattering the seed, broadcasting it as far as wide as we can. That's an external call. And we do that all the time. You know, through tracks, through open-air preaching, through the internet, through one-on-one -on -one conversations. 
But we all know that just because we speak and just because we call doesn't mean that they will follow, right? And that can be discouraging because we know that what we have to share is good news. It's life-giving. It's life-changing. These are the words of eternal life. You know, where else can you find the words of eternal life except through Scripture, except from Christ? And I knew I used to, to come home discouraged by my efforts to share the gospel because I used to think that, you know, maybe something's wrong with the way that I gave it. <laughs> you know, maybe I just didn't give it right. Am I, not, am I not sharing the message right? Am I not persuasive enough? Am I not convincing enough? Did I use the wrong technique? You know, maybe I, I didn't have enough evidence that demanded a verdict. Maybe I should have used a better argument. Maybe I should have watched away the master a little bit more and, you know, Ray Comfort could have helped me out. You know, what, you know, what was that line again? You know, you're a liar, right? You know, you've stolen something before. Oh, you already told me you lied. You stole too, right? And it's just like, maybe I just didn't say it right. You know, maybe I need the, the accent. <laughs> you know, what, like, what is it? What, what's wrong with me? But the problem is not with the seed. And by the way, they usually don't show you all the videos where people just turn them down, right? <laughs> the problem is not with the seed that's scattered, That's not the problem. The problem is not with the word. And as long as you're giving a true gospel message, you are being effective. As long as you're giving the true gospel message, that is what God has called you to do, to be faithful. But the problem is not with the faithful message. It's not the gospel that's the problem. The problem is with the soil. It's not because you're not compassionate enough. It's not because you're not convincing enough. It's not because you're not creative enough. You're not clear enough. You could be giving a clear call of the gospel, but as Matthew twenty-two fourteen says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Acts two thirty-nine says, for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And just because a person has received that external call of the gospel doesn't mean that they've received the call internally, the, the silent and specific call of the Spirit of God. To make the word travel from the head to the heart. Just because you've told them the gospel doesn't mean that they've heard the gospel. And that takes a different kind of call. That takes the call that produces an effect. Like I said, the effectual call. Those who are so called by God, as one theologian says, are made obedient to that call. And those who hear that kind of call actually follow. So the question is, if it takes God to call people to salvation, you know, what in the world are we doing in evangelism then? You know, you should just wait on him to do the calling, you know. You know, let your fingers do the walking or whatever else. Just let him take care of that. Second Thessalonians 2.14 says this, He called you, how? Through our gospel, that you might gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does God do? God takes the word that we speak, and somehow through that message that we're speaking, he allows that message to translate to the heart. And God calls them through the word that we're giving to them. He takes that word and he makes it internal. He makes the connection from the heart uh, to, the, to the ear, the ear to the heart. And for those of you who still listen to, to radio, it's like the, the Lord is broadcasting an FM, but the sinful heart only has an AM receiver. And every time you're given the gospel, and it's a, it's a true gospel message, it's a clear gospel message, there's nothing wrong with the broadcast, there's nothing wrong with what you're saying, But they're not picking it up. All they're getting is static. You're giving a faithful message, but it's like, I can't hear what you're saying. There's nothing wrong with the broadcast. There's something wrong with the receiver. 
something wrong with the sinful heart. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. It's like, you know, the, uh, Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. Then you hear all the kids, yes, teacher. It's like, what is she saying? I don't, how are they understanding that? Wah, 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 wah. Somehow they have the receiver. They can, they can hear it. And it's like God is talking to men, and you know, the, the, the scriptures are communicating the truth of the gospel, but men are hearing wah, 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 wah. <laughs> they don't have the right receiver. But when God calls us, when God does the call, he also gives the new receiver to receive it. And all of a sudden, what used to sound like static becomes trust in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love it in uh, Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, the, 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 the ray that, that brought me life. And I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. We used to be dead in our trespasses and sins, blind to the truth of God's word, deaf to the general call of salvation. And it takes the power of God to bring life, to bring the receiver, to allow the signal to get through. God is the one who has to grant life. James 1, 18 says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. 1 Peter 1.23, you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. And we'll get to it later in Romans 10.17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The Lord has to open up the heart to believe. And until the Lord does that work, we're speaking to dry bones. Dry bones. Ezekiel 37, just, just real quick if you want to flip over there, Ezekiel 37 God pictures the, the nation of, of Israel as dry bones. They're, they're a nation that's been decimated, that's been scattered. It's a dead nation. And only the Lord can grant life. And that's a great picture of what the Lord does in, in our salvation. Ezekiel 37, let me just start at, at verse 1. Ezekiel 37, starting at verse 1. Listen to what the prophet says here. He says, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of dry bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So he's about to preach to skeletons. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, put breath in you, that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Just a great picture of what the Lord calls us to do. The Lord is calling us to preach to a bunch of skeletons. 
just dry, dusty bones. And it's like, are these bones going to live again? <laughs> like, Lord, you really want me to preach to these people? <laughs> yeah, they, they, they look like dry, dusty bones, like no life is here. They, they, they're not responding. But what does the Lord say? Preach, give the word, give it again, keep giving it. And all of a sudden, you start to hear these clanking of bones together. It's like, what is that? It's like the Lord is starting to bring together some life. He's starting to bring the breath in, and this is what the Lord does. Even though they're unresponsive, they seem impossible to move, the preached word can bring life, and God can bring life through his word. God mysteriously joins his work to the preaching of the gospel, and the static becomes, wake up, repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God uses his word to bring life. As Jesus says in Matthew 13, 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Not everybody who has physical ears can hear, but they need the, the divine receiver. The Lord calls through the word that we give. And if it wasn't for that divine call, we'd still be dead. We'd still be a bunch of dry bones, a bag of bones out here if it wasn't for the Lord calling us. And one church father remarked that Christians are said to be called because they do not come of themselves. <laughs> we have to be called by God. And the Lord speaks through his word, and that's why the preaching of the word is so central to our services. It's not through sacraments that that happens. It's not through ceremonies that that happens. It's not through, uh, you know, just shouting and rolling underneath the bench that that work happens. It happens through the preached word. That's why the word is central to every service that we have, because it's the word of God that brings life. It's through the preaching of the word that we're called, and that's a work that happened in the church at Rome. And that's why they said, they're said to be, be called. You're, you're called. God has done a work in your life. He's brought you to life. He, he's allowed you to hear the, the word that, that saves, and that's why Christians can just be called the called ones. We're the called ones. First Corinthians, Jude 1. Don't ask me what, what chapter in Jude, right? Jude, Jude 1 and 1. Uh, the, the Romans were said to be called. The, the Christians are said to be the called ones. We're, we're called out by God. God has specifically drawn us out to himself. But not only are we called, we're also loved. We're also loved. Look at verse 7, called the saints to all those who are beloved of God in Rome, called the saints. We're, we're beloved of God. And maybe you think about God's love for you as something that's basic, familiar, expected. I mean, you know, of course God loves me. I mean, why, why wouldn't he, right? Maybe you're thinking about, you know, uh, that's a great topic for a new believer, but, you know, I've been saved for a while, preacher. You know, I, I know the basics. You know, God is love, you know, don't you remember that song, Yes, Jesus Loves Me, The Bible Tells Me So? Like, like, let's get on to something that's more complex, something that's more difficult. Maurice Roberts, in his book, The Thought of God, he says, perhaps nothing is more surprising in all creation than the love of God for his people. And I would add, perhaps nothing is more misunderstood than the love of God for his people. This is, this is not level one Christianity to say God is love. You know, that's not the one-on-one class. We don't graduate from the love of God to the more difficult doctrines of Scripture. The love of God is the difficult doctrine of Scripture. The Apostle Paul prayed this in Ephesians 3, 17 and 19. He says, That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. What is he saying there? You don't get it. <laughs> you think you get the love of God, but this surpasses knowledge. And I'm praying for you that you might understand this. You don't have enough mental capacity to grapple with the love 
of God in Jesus Christ. Your mind isn't big enough. Your IQ isn't high enough. Your life isn't long enough. Psalm 36.5 says, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Psalm 57.10, For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Psalm 103.11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. You know, there's the song that we used to sing, uh, song we used to sing, you know, think about his love, think about his goodness, think about his grace that brought us through. For as high as the heavens above, so great is the measure of our Father's love. God's love for us is beyond measure, beyond comprehension. Why? Because there is nothing in us to attract his love toward us. I love what A.W. Pink said. He says, what is there in me to attract the heart of God? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. But to the contrary, there was everything to repel him, everything calculated to make him loathe me, sinful, depraved, a mass of corruption with no good thing in me. There was nothing in us that called for the love of God toward us. Everything in us called for the judgment of God, not the love of God. But rather than God separating himself from us, he drew near to us in his love. Sometimes we think about the love of God like, you know, the, the opposite sides of a magnet. You know, they just automatically come together. But it's like the same sides of the magnet where you have to, like, you know, exert a force to, to push them together. It's not, it's not automatic. We should think about God's love toward us as a supernatural kind of love, an, an otherworldly kind of love. This is a love that would have been hard for Paul to swallow because this is a love that is said to be towards the Gentiles. What what do you mean the Gentiles are the beloved of God? (laughs) They're not the people of God. They're the enemies of God. That's what Paul would have thought before his conversion. To be beloved of God was a concept that was previously known to the Jewish people. And to say now that the, the Romans are beloved of God was to use language for them that was used for Israel. Deuteronomy 10.15 says, Yet on your father, speaking of Israel, did the Lord set his affection to love them. God is identified by his love for Israel. Isaiah 43 and verse 3 says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And verse 4, Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you. That's what the Lord spoke about Israel. I've loved you with an everlasting love, he says in Jeremiah 31.3. But now God is determined to set his love and affection on the, the Gentiles. Just, just real quick, flip over to, to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, look at verse 24. Let's talk about those whom he has also called, verse 24. Look what he says. Not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And you know what? That's us. We were not his people. We were not beloved. But now we are the beloved. We are the called of God. We are the people of God. The Apostle John says in 1 John 3, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. When he says how great, he's saying like, what country does this come from? Like, this is foreign. It's supernatural. It's a love that's out of this world that he would love us. Otherworldly kind of love. And then Jesus says in John 17, he spoke these words about believers. He says, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. 
so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So the love that the Father has for the Son, he shares that same love with us. It's incredible to think about. You can't experience a greater love than that. To be caught up in the infinite love of the Trinity should be mind-boggling that God would love us. It's been said like this, For God, the greatest lover, so loved to the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company, that he gave the greatest act, his only begotten Son, the greatest gift, that whosoever, the greatest opportunity, believeth the greatest simplicity, in him, the greatest attraction, should not perish the greatest promise, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. As one commentator said, a study of the book of Romans reveals that God now loves the believers in Rome, but has also loved them for all of eternity. This is a love that you can't understand. It's beyond comprehension that God would have this kind of love for us. But he doesn't stop there. He also calls us the saints. We're those who are called, we're loved, and we're also saints. Look back in uh, verse 7 of chapter 1. It says that we're called as, as saints. And did you notice that he calls all the believers of Rome saints? All who are called of Christ, all who are loved by God, are all designated as saints, and that's every one of us. And if you need some help with that, I'll just remind you of what Paul called the Corinthians. The Corinthian church was a, a church that was divided with pride over their favorite teachers. It was reported that there was sexual immorality among them. They were taking one another to court. They were confused about marriage. They're confused about Christian liberty. They were confused about the Lord's Supper, confused about spiritual gifts, confused about the resurrection from the dead. They had to be encouraged to support one another. They're like spiritual babies. In 1 Corinthians, it says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. You're, you're a bunch of spiritual babies. But what does he call the people of, of Corinth? He calls them saints. How in the world do, do these people get to be saints? Are you kidding me, Paul? You're going to call these baby, immature, sinful believers saints? Yep. Why, why can you call them saints? Because they believe in Christ. And the moment that you believe in Christ, you're called a saint. You've been designated as a saint. Paul says you're, you're saints. And every one of us in here who's trusted in Jesus Christ, we're called saints. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, it says, To the church of God, which, has, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. The moment that you call out to Christ for salvation, for uh, spiritual life, the Bible says that he designates you as a holy one, a saint. You know, some of us, uh, you know, we only think of the saints as, you know, those people in the, on the stained glass in the churches somewhere. You know, saint this and saint that. You know, the Catholic church has kind of taken that term and made a mockery of it in many ways. Roman Catholic church says that a saint is somebody who's been recognized as living a heroically virtuous life, worthy of sainthood. And by the Vatican's congregation for the causes of saints, they receive applications. They have to be approved after verifiable miracles. They have to be recognized by a panel of theologians. They have to be a, approved by the Pope. And then a second miracle has to be verified before they're finally allowed to become saints, canonized as saints. But where is that in any of the scripture? You don't find any of that. 
It's those who call on the name of the Lord. Those who trust in Jesus Christ by faith are called saints. As one author says, we're not called because we're saints. We're saints because we're called. We're saints because we're called. Positionally sanctified. We've been designated as holy. And isn't that what justification is? The doctrine of justification? That believers have been declared righteous by faith and faith alone? This is what we're going to learn throughout the rest of the book of, of Romans. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 4, 5, but to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. We've been declared righteous by faith. We can be called saints because we've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is now applied to our lives. And we can stand before God in the righteousness of his son, not because of anything that we've done. It's something that we're granted. The moment that we become a Christian, we're united with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we've been made saints. As one of our hymns says, the, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. The vilest offender can become a saint by trusting in Jesus Christ. And in place of our sinful record, we have the perfect record of righteousness. And what a wonderful exchange that is. Have you received that exchange? Have you been forgiven of your sins? Do you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ placed on your account because you've trusted in him? You know, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ by faith and received of his righteousness? That's the most beautiful exchange and the only way that you can stand before God without judgment falling upon you is that you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ standing on your behalf. And finally, after addressing who the Romans are, Paul is ready to say hello finally. All the way down in verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's finally greeting the, the, the saints at Rome. After seven verses, he finally says hello. The typical ancient Roman greeting was the word for joy, karain. It's joy to you. We find it in the uh, prisoner transfer document when the Apostle Paul was sent from Jerusalem uh, to Caesarea, uh, Governor Felix in Caesarea, Acts 23, 26, it says, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent Governor Felix, greetings, you know, joy to you is what he says. And that's the way that the Romans greeted one another, joy to you. But Christians took that Roman greeting and went beyond it. Instead of using the word for joy, karain, they used a similar sounding word that reminded them of why they have that joy. It's because of the grace of God. So instead of using karain, they use charis, charis, the, the, the word for, for grace, grace to you. They didn't say joy to you. They said grace to you. And it's the grace that brings the joy. Actually, that's how I, I named my two daughters. My first daughter, Carice, from the, the word for grace and Kara from the word for, for joy. But it was a, a Roman greeting and became a Christian greeting. Grace to you. Sounds like a great radio program, by the way. Grace to you. I don't know. And grace is going to be the major theme of the book, one of the major themes of the book, the freely given grace and favor of God in salvation. We're justified as a gift by his grace. And Paul's greetings for the believers is, is this grace upon grace. We're saved by grace. We live by grace. We'll be taken to glory by grace. And forever we will be trophies of God's grace in eternity to come. It's grace upon grace, multiplied grace. And then Paul also gives a common Jewish greeting. 
It's like Paul is reinforcing the, the unity of the, of the body of Christ and also the universal uh, gospel uh, uh, call. He gives a, a Gentile greeting, and then he also turns around and gives the Jewish greeting. What's the Jewish greeting? The Jewish greeting was peace, which is uh, Irene in, in Greek. If you know somebody with the name Irene, it actually comes from that Greek word for, for peace. You know, Irenic, you know, is another word for, you know, peaceful or that which makes for peace. But the Hebrew word for that was shalom. Shalom. Peace. When Jennifer and I went to, to Israel, they, they gave us a number of Jewish greetings. You know, the, the Jewish greeting was, uh, you know, shalom alechem. You know, uh, peace be upon you. Peace to you. And they would return with, you know, alechem shalom. You know, and to you, peace as well. You know, that's the way that they would greet one another. Peace be upon you. It's used then as a, a general wish. I wish you well. Basic meaning of peace. You know, I wish you and your family are, are doing well. But in the Christian context, peace means so much more than that, doesn't it? It's not just, hey, I hope you're, you're doing well. I hope your family's doing well. We don't just wish that people would have physical and temporary peace on earth. You know, peace and goodwill towards men. We want more than that. We want more than what the world wants. My wife and I were, were watching this, uh, this game show. And the question was asked you know, to one of the contestants, you know, why do you, want, why do you want to win this money? And this is what he said. He says, I just want to be comfortable and I want the people that I love to be comfortable. Like, that's, that's, the, that's the highest, you know, kind of goal that the world can find. I want to be comfortable, and I want those around me to be comfortable. But that's a, a piece of the world. It doesn't include the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't include the righteousness of Christ. And there's people all across the world who just desire to be comfortable, and the people around me that I love to be comfortable. Temporary happiness and comfort and, and pleasure, but without forgiveness. And that's a terrible kind of peace without forgiveness. It's a terrible kind of happiness. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 25, he calls it the passing pleasures of sin. And there's a lot of people that are comfortable with their sins. I just want to be comfortable. I want my bills to be paid. You know, I want to be in good health. You know, I'm fine with that. That's the kind of peace that I want. Just a the, the, the passing pleasures of, of sin, a, a temporary comfort and happiness. I was reading from the life of uh, Robert Murray Machain, and he writes this, and, and this is just powerful. He says, perhaps you will tell me that you are very happy as you are. I quite believe you. I know that I was very happy when I was unforgiven. I know that I had great pleasure in many sins, many a delightful walk. I have had speaking my own words, thinking my own thoughts, seeking, seeking my own pleasure. I had happiness. No tears filled my eyes so that I know that you are, you say quite true when you say that you are happy as you are. But ah, he says, is not this just the saddest thing of all? Isn't that the saddest thing of all that you are happy just like you are? Isn't that the saddest thing of all that you should be happy while you are a child of wrath? That you should smile and eat and drink and be merry and sleep sound when this very night your soul may be in hell? Happy while unforgiven? What a terrible happiness. What a terrible happiness. And how many people are just like that? I'm happy but unforgiven. I just want my life comfortable. I want the people around me comfortable. But I'm not really worried about making sure that my soul is right with God. Not knowing that you could be like the parable of the, the rich fool. This night your soul is required of you. And then who's going to get all the stuff that you possessed? 
temporary peace. That's not the kind of peace that Christianity offers. Christianity offers a peace that can sustain you in the midst of a storm. When the waves of adversity come crashing in, when your life is being ripped apart at the seams, that's where you can still have peace. When the next 9-11 happens, you can still have peace because we know that we have peace with God, the greatest peace. One author says, our peace is not the calm reflection of an unclouded sky, tranquil waters of a picturesque lake, but rather the cleft of the rock in which the Lord hides his children when the storm is raging. Or to change the figure, it is the hiding place under the wings to which the hen gathers her brood so that the little chicks are safe while the storm bursts loose in all its fury around herself. That's the peace that the Lord offers us. When the world is gone crazy, I can still give you peace because your greatest peace has been already made. You have peace with me. And that's where we find our security. That's where we find our comfort. It's not just in the things of the world. And now this grace and peace have been offered to them, and it only comes through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand what you have in the gospel? You have, you have grace. <laughs> you have peace. There's no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. You've been given the greatest gifts we have peace with God. And I love what R.C. Sproul says. He says it's not, it's not a, an uneasy truce, the peace that we have with God. He says God does not rattle the sword every time he's distressed with our behavior. It's not like, you know, you, you had peace with me, but oh, you messed up and let me, you know, I'm starting to pull the sword out of its sheath, rattling the sword. It's like that's not what God does. You have peace with God, you have peace with God forevermore. Like, you've been brought into this peace. Don't let anybody fool you. We will sin. Christians do sin, but Christians do not have condemnation. We don't sit underneath the wrath of God anymore. God does not pull out his sword every time a believer sins. The peace that God gives us cannot be revoked. We've been reconciled, justified, and we possess that peace right now and forevermore. We're called, we're loved, and even though we still sin, we're declared saints. And why wouldn't we want to get that kind of message everywhere? <laughs> that's, that's the message that we preach. That's the message that Paul was committed to. That's the message that we should be committed to supporting. And this is the message that God himself is committed to. Did you notice where grace and peace come from? God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God's grace and peace that's offered to us. And here we have God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ placed next to one another. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, nobody belongs next to God except God. So when it says God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, it's already saying right there that Jesus Christ is God, places him on the same level with God our Father. And this is where grace and peace come from. Offer to all the nations, Acts 2.39 says, for the promises for you, your children, and for all who are far off and as many as are the Lord our God will call to himself. This is a peace that we have with God, and this is all just in the introduction to Romans. There's, there's no need to rush here. There's no need to rush. Everywhere you turn in the book of Romans, the treasures are right there waiting for you. So uh, we're just grateful for what the Lord has offered to us, the peace. And uh, if you're here today, you don't just need to know the definition of peace. You don't just need to know the, the definition of grace. You need to have the experience of it. You need to experience it. And if, if you're here today, we would just plead with you that you would turn to the only place where you can find everlasting peace and the grace of God 
And it's only through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've uh, enjoyed together. We thank you for the time in your word. My Father, we uh, thank you that uh, you, God, do not rattle the sword every time that we've sinned against you. uh, But we have a a peace that's everlasting, a peace that will endure throughout all of eternity. uh, Because our peace has already been made for us. It's been made at the cross. At the cross, Jesus Christ suffered and bled and died in the place of sinners. And it's because of his righteous life that we can stand before you in the righteousness of your son. Father, we thank you for the grace, the free gift of God that's been offered to us. And Father, we thank you that we have been called and that we are now loved and loved forevermore. Father, the love of, of, that you have for us is amazing. It surpasses all of our understanding. And Father, I pray that you would give us a, a greater appreciation for the, the breadth and the height and the depth of your love for us. How great a love that you would send your son to be the sacrifice for unworthy rebels. Uh, But that's what you've done. And uh, Father, we do thank you for it. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.